Get ready to listen, learn, and earn CE hours. This podcast features content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Welcome to this multi-episode series about women's reproductive health issues in the face of changing legislation, and thank you for taking time to join us. I'm Leanna McGuire, your host for this Elite Learning Podcast by Calibri Healthcare. The July 2022 Supreme Court of the United States decision regarding Roe v. Wade has spurred much discussion about how healthcare and women's health issues are and may be impacted. We wanted to have a nonpartisan, nonpolitical discussion of matters related to women's health and reproductive health care to help bring clarity to the current conversation. Through these podcast episodes, we will discuss some concepts to consider related to the recent Supreme Court of the United States, also known as SCOTUS, decision, some clarifying information about reproductive health in the United States, and some women's health care topics that are at risk for misinformation today. We have an expert in women's health joining us for this conversation. Erica Springer is a board-certified women's health nurse practitioner. Welcome, Erica. Erica Springer, MSN, CRNP, WHNP, BC, a lot of initials, nicely done, wears many hats. She is an assistant clinical professor and director of women's health and gender-related issues for a nurse practitioner program at Drexel University. She's also clinically active as a practicing nurse practitioner for an OBGYN practice in Pennsylvania. In addition, she co-presents a women's health nurse practitioner certification exam review and advanced practice update for Fitzgerald Health Education Associates. We are glad to have you with us today, Erica. Is there anything you'd like to add to your introduction? Thanks, Leanna. While my passion and clinical expertise is women's health, my nursing career actually started as a critical care nurse at a level one shock trauma unit. Through this really early experience in my nursing career, I learned the art of difficult conversations. I was raised also by, as the second child of teen parents who are still happily married, perhaps most impressive is that they never once had a a political conversation in my presence. Perhaps that's the key to their happy marriage. So my undergraduate studies took place at a small Catholic college, so diverse background, and currently I'm pursuing a doctorate in nursing practice. My teaching, my full-time job, focuses primarily on clinical components of the women's health and gender-related nurse practitioner program, as well as health assessment and pharmacology, so pretty broad. My academic interests include experiential learning, simulation, I love to create interdisciplinary experiences, and we've even collaborated the nurse practitioners students with some of our law students at the university. Wow. You certainly have the women's health background, the related academic and clinical experiences to help explain more about this topic to us today and spread awareness about these matters. And I'd like to hear more about you personally and the many aspects that have helped to shape you personally and professionally. That's really interesting. Let's jump into the discussion at hand. Changes to laws and healthcare policies create a need to understand how to navigate the new and different healthcare environment based on the influence and effects of those laws and policies. But sometimes misinterpretation, the surprise of the announcement of new legislation-related matters and rumors begin to circulate, yielding possible misinformation. 
Why don't we begin by discussing Roe versus Wade, what the SCOTUS decision from July 2022 was, and what it all means for us now. But first, some background info. What was the Roe versus Wade decision from approximately 50 years ago in the 1970s? So back in 1970, the state of Texas had a law that abortion was illegal unless it was to save a pregnant person's life. Henry Wade was a district attorney in Dallas County, Texas at that time. Norma McCovey, known as Jane Roe, the Roe in Roe versus Wade, was a young woman who lived in Texas at the time. Her biography includes quite the traumatic childhood and adolescence with abuse, substance use, and an array of religious affiliations throughout her life. Her first pregnancy occurred at the age of 18, with her first two offspring being placed with adopted families. And it was actually her third pregnancy, which really brought about this as she sought an abortion. She was unable to access a clinic because it had been an illegal clinic and had been shut down for the authorities. And so she didn't have access to that choice. So Texas lawmakers were looking for women to use as part of their fight to legalize abortion. And so they connected with Jane Roe. And so the argument was that bans on abortion were unconstitutional as it infringed on the personal privacy as protected by various amendments, the 1st, 4th, 5th, ninth, and the 14th. So this went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court and was decided in 1973, long after McCorby's third child had been born and adopted. For the past nearly 50 years, this benchmark case kept states from legislating against abortion prior to viability, which we'll talk about, or the ability of a fetus to live outside the womb. So this viability line really determined balance between a person carrying a pregnancy and the state's protection of the fetus. Roe versus Wade served as a precedence for SCOTUS cases regarding marriage equality, same-sex intimacy, and contraception access as well. So it goes far beyond just abortion. Sure. Okay, that was really informative to learn more about the background of that case. And now in 2022, what was the SCOTUS decision related to Roe versus Wade? The actual case that SCOTUS had to discuss was the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. Is that right? So the case of Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization followed a 2018 state law in Mississippi that banned most abortions after the 15th week of pregnancy based on a last menstrual period. Mississippi already had a law in place since 2014, and that law prohibited pregnancy termination beyond 20 weeks, not viability. So interestingly enough, even though 20 weeks is prior to that typically accepted viability of 24 weeks, nobody had contested it. And neither had any of the similar laws in other states, despite Roe versus Wade protecting through viability. So there was already dis discrepancy. It just hadn't been contested until this Dobbs versus Jackson case. So who's involved? Thomas E. Dobbs was the state health officer with the Mississippi State Department of Health. Jackson Women's Health Organization was the only abortion provider in the entire state of Mississippi. The Mississippi State Department of Health claimed that abortion is not constitutionally protected and that the viability standard doesn't allow for states to protect maternal and fetal health. They also claim that Roe versus Wade was outdated because of availability of protective measures for parents in the workplace. 
things like leave time, pregnancy discrimination protections, childcare assistance. They claim that because availability of contraception, abortion is unnecessary for equality in economic life. This case was appealed all the way through the Mississippi court system and was presented for SCOTUS and upheld on June 24th, 2022. It shifted abortion regulation back to elected officials at the state level. When it comes to matters of law, I've heard that the law is not an issue of what is best or worst, convenient or inconvenient, or even right or wrong, but rather if a certain matter is a matter of legislation. For example, if the Constitution or state law is determined not to address an issue, then the said issue is not a legal issue for courts to decide. It's outside of the court's control. Do you think that analogy applies here in any regard? Like the Supreme Court has said the issue of elective abortion is essentially no longer a federal one and that states will decide their regulations regarding abortion. This is obviously complex, particularly with regards to pregnancy termination, right? Right, right. Some would say that a fetus is a life, regardless of gestation and killing a life is absolutely a legal issue and should fall under legislation. Simple. It gets really complex when we look at it from different cultural perspectives as to whether a grouping of human cells with electrical activity is a living being with the same rights as the host parent who's carrying the pregnancy. And we see this really broad continuum of description for a pre-viable pregnancy from a group of cells, a living embryo or fetus, a potential life, or an unborn human being. When we look at it from various religious and cultural perspectives, abortion becomes much more of a moral question than a legal one. And then we have to ask, is this to be legislated at all? Thus, when we look at Roe versus Wade, it was approached as a liberty of privacy. It kind of makes sense when you look at it that way and why it was approached that way. Federal legal protection of privacy between a patient and their medical provider allowed for practitioners to practice under the Hippocratic Oath, they applied ethical principles, and take care of patients individually. In an earlier SCOTUS case, Casey versus Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania, Roe was upheld because they based it on the 14th Amendment, privacy as a liberty set by the court's precedent. Basically, in the Dobbs case, the court's ruling was under the premise that abortion is not specifically protected in the Constitution nor is it protected deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition or necessary for our ordered liberty. Therefore, the Dobbs decision shifted abortion regulation back to the state level, back to the people. Something to consider, we all elected all current state legislature when abortion had some national protection under Roe v. Wade. So some states, including, are including questions regarding abortion on recent and upcoming ballots in an effort to hear the people's voices while other states have legislation awaiting changes in leadership, and some even had some trigger laws that were set up to go into effect as soon as Roe v. Wade was overturned. Got it. What are some of the ramifications of the 2022 SCOTUS decision? It didn't remove abortion from the country, as some misinformation may state, but an abortion will be harder to obtain if one lives in a state that has limited its use. Is that accurate? Uh, Medical and procedural abortion is very much available in the United States as a whole. Access to care is and will continue to be significantly impacted by abortion restrictions, both in affected states and those states where abortion is legal. It won't only affect people of reproductive age or those seeking abortion. People with money, transportation, resources will be able to travel to states to access abortion and the care that they need. 
Those who have limited resources and support will continue to face the greatest challenges, further increases in health disparity. For example, many abortion clinics often provide women's health services such as contraception and screenings for breast and gynecologic cancers. If these clinics close because they're no longer allowed to offer abortion services, patients lose an access point to wellness and preventative services as well. We're already seeing a shifting in resources. We have increased number of patients in states allowed to provide abortion services, and it's putting a strain on those providers and staff. Patients at, that are local to the clinic who may also obtain contraception and screenings at that source, they may have delayed access too because they're over flooded. Providers may choose to practice in states where they have a lower risk for litigation. For example, I practice in a state where abortion is currently legal. If a patient comes to me with a desired pregnancy and I identify there's no fetal cardiac activity, there's no heartbeat, there's these guidelines that I follow to get a diagnosis of a missed abortion or a non-viable pregnancy. Simple. I can give the patient options. We can talk about expectant management. We can talk about medication to promote passing of the tissue. We can talk about a dilation and evacuation procedure or a d &E. This conversation is between me and my patient, and together we decide what's best treatment for them for the very sad loss of their very desired pregnancy. If I step back and look at this same situation in a different lens in a state where abortion is illegal, I not only need to be aware of what the best medical care is for my patient, the best emotional support for them and their family, but now I need to think about what are the restrictions in place for providing diagnosis of this non-viable pregnancy? Is my still picture of an ultrasound going to be enough to prove absence of cardiac activity? It's not going to capture lack of movement. Since DNA procedures for missed abortions or non-viable pregnancy are the same exact procedure as an elective termination, will there be regulation around the procedure itself regardless of the underlying purpose? Every major medical organization supports abortion as an evidence-based comprehensive healthcare practice. But in the landscape of quickly changing state regulations, those in healthcare system will need to be very diligent. What are some of the possible ramifications of the issue of the legality of abortion moving from a federal to a state matter? What does it mean for now? In addition to changes in access in both abortion services, possible shifts in women's health services, the greatest ramification is inconsistency between states. Providing the same medical care or procedure to a patient in one state could bring criminal charges against a provider for doing the exact same procedure for the exact same reason in another state. You can kind of equate this to things like legalized recreational marijuana or concealed carry laws that vary from state to state. What is perfectly legal in one place could land you in jail in another state next door. So these variances in state regulations from state to state are not new. Variances in state abortion regulations from state to state are not new. States have imposed gestational age limits on abortion, the types of providers who can offer medical and procedural abortions, types and timelines of counseling prior to procedure, and even limitations as to the types of facilities that can allow procedural abortions to be performed. Even before this SCOTUS decision, these patient safety regulations, as they called them, varied among states, with some claiming they were not necessary for patient safety, but actually created this limitation to abortion access already. Essentially, the same awareness, prevention, education, and access we have balanced in family planning for many years will still apply. Awareness. 
patients and providers need to be aware of the regulations where they practice and any potential barriers that are created. Prevention. We need to be really sure that we're at the top of our game with prevention of undesired fertility, both for patients and providers. This includes not only access to contraception and emergency contraception, but also access to wellness services. This is a time to fine-tune our system for access to contraception. Sexual health amongst all genders can be addressed outside of traditional women's health arenas. Our primary care providers, it needs to be on everybody's radar in healthcare. Education. Providers and patient education is essential. I've known really highly educated people who think that if they have an unintended pregnancy, they just call their OBGYN and they can just get a prescription for a medication abortion. It's not that easy. Access. We have to continue working to identify and eliminate barriers to care. Small things. So avoiding placing unnecessary barriers for effective contraception and promote use of highly efficacious contraception. Things like annual exams for contraception prescriptions. We can divorce those two things. We can prescribe, prescribe contraception without having a patient have to present to the office for an annual exam. It's evidence-based practice. Waiting for insertion of long-acting contraceptives like IUSs or contraceptive rods, waiting for their period. Those are no longer evidence-based, but it's still happening more than it needs to. And it increases the risk for unintended pregnancy when we have these unnecessary delays. A couple of resources that I find really important for providers to stay up to date with what their current legislation is in their area, gutmocker.org and kff.org are really doing a great job at updating current state regulations on abortion. Okay. And how do abortion laws work at the state level? In general, most states have some type of legislation that either supports access to abortion or it limits by gestational age, fetal cardiac activity. It may allow for abortion as the result of rape or incest if the proper reports have been filed. In addition to the federal protections, which we'll discuss later, some states have exceptions written into their law for medical emergencies where pregnancy would put the mother at risk of harm or death. Enforcement varies. Example, in Texas, a citizen can actually file charges against an abortion provider. While in most states where abortion's illegal, providers or abortion seekers can be prosecuted just only by law enforcement. Okay. And can you speak about insurance? I'm really curious about this. How might insurance be affected by changing laws regarding abortion or birth control? There's always been a misconception with this. In general, elective termination of pregnancies never been well covered by many insurance plans, though the exact same procedures used and are likely covered for medically required cases for health and safety of the caring parent. The Hyde Amendment, which is a federal restriction, it was enacted by Congress, and it's assured that federal funds cannot be used for abortion services with exceptions of rape, incest, and severe maternal risk. So states can choose to use their own funds to support abortion services within their Medicaid programs, which provide health benefits to those of low income and special needs. This does extend to other federally backed insurers as well. And oftentimes commercial payers or commercial insurance companies use those similar federal Medicare and Medicaid guidelines when they decide their own coverage restrictions. So overall, it's never been well covered anyway. So the change there isn't going to be as significant as what one might think. Something else to consider, our reimbursement system for medical services in the United States has changed a lot over the last 50 years since Roe versus Wade was put into place. 
providers were previously paid for the services they provided. Now there's this complex balance between providers and medical systems and insurance companies or payers. And that's how reimbursements determined for care and services provided. I really don't foresee these changing laws making coverage better for most states and in some ways may offer further support for insurance plans to avoid covering abortion services. We have seen, interestingly enough, some employers who publicly are offering, with regard to abortion access, reimbursement for abortion-related expenses like travel for their employees. Something to think about with technology, remote employment has become an option. So an employee may live in one state, but their health plan may be administered in a different state. We may see some things there with the differences in requirements by state and what health insurance has to cover and employment regulation there. Okay. And how might the SCOTUS decision impact the issue between the FDA's stance on medically induced abortion via pill form and elective abortion? Many of the same states who put abortion bans in effect after the Dobbs case was decided have also made efforts to block medication abortion. The two medications used in the FDA protocol for medication abortion are mifepristone and misoprostol. Mifepristone is a progesterone antagonist, and it works by blocking progesterone receptors. Progesterone is necessary for developing pregnancy. The drug blocking this necessary hormone that halts the pregnancy development and leads to a separation of that pregnancy from inside the uterus. Many of these same states have bans on abortion already had significant regulations on this medication. Things like counseling that was necessary, performance of an ultrasound that the patient sees, waiting periods, regulations as to who can dispense the medication. For example, in Pennsylvania, I as a nurse practitioner cannot dispense this medication. Misoprostol is a prostaglandin. It causes the cervix to soften. It dilates and causes the uterus to contract. While it's used in combination with mifepristone for medication abortion, originally the FDA approved it as a stomach medication, believe it or not, and as pre-medication for some gynecologic procedures. We use it before we put in IUDs sometimes. And there's, it's also part of some of the protocols used for medication abortion alone without mifepristone. States typically regulate the practice of medicine. However, the FDA regulates medication safety and efficacy in the United States. Medication abortion lies in the realm of both. So typically in the U.S., because of supremacy law, federal regulation supersedes state legislation. So in this case, the federal support of mifepristone and misoprostol would prevail. Now, while the supremacy clause was intended to extend to prescription drug regulation, remains to be determined through current litigation. So there are ongoing cases with this and yet to be determined a bit. Some also argue that the dormant clause supporting interstate commerce prevents an individual state from banning a safe and effective drug. However, significant relation around its use is quite possible and in many ways has long been in effect. Yet another argument is that the abortion ban that essentially bans the drug, the drug itself is not being banned by the state. Therefore, the FDA regulations are not being violated at all. It gets really confusing. Right. Finally, some say that since the state bans are not related to safety, they don't conflict with the FDA regulations whatsoever. And it's fine. So I really see see there being some to be determined with this one. Yeah. Yeah, I see that. What do you foresee as an impact on illegal abortion or self-managed abortion as a result of changing legislation? When humans are desperate or determined, they will go to great lengths to do what they think they need to do. And the overall concern that I hear is that we'll see an increase in illegal or unsafe abortion in areas where abortion is illegal or difficult to access. 
We definitely saw this prior to Roe v. Wade, a decrease in abortion complications after that decision was made in 1973. So patients will seek self-managed medication abortions either from sources not regulated by the FDA or with little to no medical oversight. They might ingest large amounts of harmful substances. Those who are uninformed regarding medication abortion are likely to attempt physical means of ending pregnancy, such as insertion of physical objects. And we see this in studies. We may see an increase in unsafe abortions occurring in states where abortion is illegal, some even using devices ordered off the internet. Because illegal and self-managed abortions are not reported, we're really only gonna have a sense of the complications of those who actually seek care and will they seek care. What are you seeing in your clinical practice since the SCOTUS decision? The majority of patients in our private practice are really highly educated and consistently have their basic needs met. We're having lots of discussions about the best, most effective contraceptive method for them. And I've definitely seen an increased number of referrals for sterilization procedures. This is in the state of Pennsylvania, where abortion laws have not changed and was significantly regulated prior to the SCOTUS decision. However, November election outcomes could really potentially change this here, and I'm seeing my patients really take action about it. One of the most impressive cases that I had recently was a patient in her late 20s. She had never been sexually active. She had always shared with me she never wanted to rear children. She didn't want to birth children. She didn't want to parent children. She actually requested a pre-op consult for permanent sterilization uh, because she just wants to make sure that her reproductive choices, that she remains childless and it can't ever be impacted. Wow. Well, thank you for explaining some of this background information about the legal cases and the possible impacts on people and practice experiences. That's all the time we have for episode one. Thank you for joining us. We will continue the conversation in episode two, covering helpful terminology, statistics, and clarifying information with regard to abortion and healthcare. A very sincere thank you to Erica Springer. This is Leanna McGuire for Elite Learning by Calibri Healthcare. This podcast featured content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Take your learning to the next level by subscribing to more podcasts on compelling healthcare topics.